0: Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, December 2nd. I'm Andrew Walworth. The state of Georgia holds its Senate runoff elections next Tuesday, and although the result won't determine which party holds the majority in the new term, it is still a hard fought battle with much at stake and President Biden is looking to change the order of the 2024 Democratic presidential primaries. Potentially bad news for Iowa and New Hampshire, although Senator Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire has vowed that the Granite State would remain the first in the nation when it comes to the 2024 presidential race. And while Democrats have already decided on their new minority leader, Republicans are in a fight over who will lead their caucus. Kevin McCarthy faces opposition from a handful of his fellow GOP members, but in a narrowly divided House, that could be enough to lead to a showdown on the House floor next January. Joining me to talk about all this are co founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and White House correspondent Phil Wegman. So, Tom, let's start with uh, Georgia. Election Day is Tuesday, December 6th. Uh, what do the RCP uh, poll averages say about the race at this point, And what is at stake? Well, we just got a new poll this morning
1: from CNN showing uh, Warnock up four points, 52-48 over Walker. Uh, two polls out yesterday, both showing Warnock ahead. He's, he's ahead. There have only been four polls taken. He's ahead in every single one of them, anywhere from two to four points. He's up 3.2 in our Rookler Politics average. So – I mean, it looks like he's pretty clearly got the edge here, although it is close. So we'll have to we'll have to wait and see what happens. I mean, it seems like it's been fairly sleepy. There hasn't been a lot about it. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot—eighty million plus dollars spent just over this six-week period. Um, Obama's going down there to try and be the closer again for for Democrats and for Warnock. You've had this whole brouhaha with Trump and Kanye West and. And all of that, and so Trump is uh, not going to be in in Georgia, which I think is um, an interesting development. And you know, Walker's kind of keeping his distance from from Trump a little bit. You know, I think I think Republicans being a little disorganized, maybe uh, still deflated from from November. And again, there's been early voting since since Saturday. The Democrats sued to change the uh, the law that was just passed, didn't allow voting on the Saturday. After a uh, national holiday, it was it was Thanksgiving weekend, but the court allowed it. And so they've been voting from uh, early voting since since last Saturday.
0: Phil, as uh, as Tom mentions, Obama was down there. He was down there Thursday. President Biden hasn't gone. Says he won't go. Trump isn't going either. As as Tom said, what what does this say that the you know the leaders of both parties uh, are either not welcome or not willing to, uh, to go to Georgia and weigh in on this?
2: Fundamentally, Democrats just see a win in Georgia as icing on the cake. They have their numbers currently. They would love to keep Senator Warnock but right now with Fetterman's win in Pennsylvania. Um, They see this as an added benefit, and there's not as much urgency as there would have been if Oz would have defended that seat in Pennsylvania for Republicans. I think that uh, Democrats just feel pretty good about their chances generally. They also uh, have gotten pretty good at realizing when uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are, are not a value add. So they feel confident enough to stay away. And that's why thus far we haven't seen any plans for the president to go down to Georgia.
0: But are there people within the Democratic Party who think that uh, the president's appearance in Georgia might actually hurt Warnock's prospects? Yeah, I, I, yeah. It's not just that they've got it in the bag, so he's not
2: bothering. <laughs> yeah, th- that's absolutely right. Um, they picked their shots uh, with the previous races, and they're doing the same thing uh, in, in Georgia. Biden and the DNC know that they probably do more harm than good at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, he dodged a bullet in, in November, and uh, I don't think that they automatically assume that makes him you know, a celebrity uh, among the party faithful like Obama is.
3: Carl, how do you see it? Well, I I don't disagree with it, either Phil or Tom that I'll say a couple other things though I this race seems to matter more to Democrats than it does to Republicans um, and that that gives the Democrats advantage and there's some reasons for it the, the Hill newspaper had a, a story on you know, five reasons Georgia Georgia matters so one of them is that they've got a they've got a tough map in 2024 again the, the Senate Democrats so they want every seat they can get the the other another one is that you know, they like Warnock. They actually want Warnock to be their, their colleague, not, not Herschel Walker. Donald Trump may be staying out of Georgia, but Herschel Walker is identified with him. And this would be another blow to the mystique of of Donald Trump. You know, Warnock won last time. And if, if the Senate had depended on this, if appointing judges depended on this race, Republicans would be all in, man. Um, and, and Republican voters in Georgia would, even those who don't care for Herschel Walker, uh, the, the who gave the governor the incumbent governor a sizable victory, they would hold their nose, vote for Hersh Walker. They don't have to now. So to me, the signs favor the Democrats for the reasons Phil and Tom said, but also I think the Democrats really want this. And I don't think not sending Biden is any sign that they don't care about it. I think they really care about it. And, and you, you alluded to Andy yourself to, you know, wh- whether Biden visit would help or hurt. I, I remember the first time I ever covered a story in Georgia, a political story, uh, Joe Frank Harris was the Democratic governor, and Walter Mondale was coming to Atlanta. And Harris Harris was going to be like two blocks from Mondale, the, the Democratic nominee, and he wouldn't see him, he wouldn't meet him, wouldn't be on the stage with him. And I went and asked Harris about it. He looked me right in the eye, and he answered every question I asked, him. and then I asked this question. He said, I, "I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question." This, and he wouldn't say anything. He, you know, in those days, there's no reporters aren't carrying around iPhones. He just wouldn't even answer the question. Just looked me right in the eye and just kind of wouldn't even shake his head. No, he didn't want to be with Mondale because Mondale wasn't popular. This is not the same for Biden. He's not unpopular. He's not out of fit for Georgia Democrats the way Fritz Mondale was. If they sent Barack Obama, they've sent their most popular guy in their party. So I, they want it. And I think they're poised to win it.
0: So Tom, what about two people in this, McConnell and, um, and Brian Kemp? Brian Kemp has sort of lent his machine, apparently, to Herschel Walker, does a win or loss for Herschel Walker say anything about Brian Kemp within the state? And second, McConnell. I mean, because there is this sort of odd theory going around that McConnell really doesn't want Herschel Walker to win because this is bad for Trump, and you play it out from there.
1: Well, I don't think whatever happens on Tuesday is a reflection on Brian Kemp. I mean, he won his race handily over Stacey Abrams, and you know, obviously, it can't hurt Herschel Walker to to try and attach himself to to Brian Kemp and I think to his political machine um I'm not sure how much it's going to benefit him um because one of the things that we saw in November is that Herschel Walker uh you know struggled to keep up with Brian Kemp there were a lot of crossover voters a decent enough amount Brian Kemp had high favorable ratings Herschel Walker did not and and so that's one of the reasons that he ran what you know 5 almost 6 points behind Brian Kemp in that election so we'll see as far as mitch mcconnell goes i mean there was this theory that you know and th- there was this tension during the campaign about mitch mcconnell and his pack and where he was pulling money and where he was putting money and who he was supporting and who he wasn't and uh, certainly i think in general the the rank and file of the republican party does not like mitch mcconnell they look at mitch mcconnell and they think that he is in some ways antithetical to their their interests and their values but, at the end of the day, I mean, you know what was the what was the vote phil thirty seven to ten or something I mean, it wasn't
2: with one abstaining,
1: yeah, I mean, it wasn't even that close uh he is the Republican leader in the Senate, and so um again, I don't have any particular insight into what he's thinking about this race in particular. It doesn't
3: matter in terms of i mean, I guess it does matter in the sense that well wait a minute wait wait Tom, can I say something about that because I think both Schumer and McConnell. They'd give you a straight answer, and their answer publicly be the same as privately. Uh, M- Schumer would like the Democrat to win, and uh, McConnell would like the Republican to win for sim- for, for a simple reason that if if uh, Herschel Walker, if the Senate was tied again, Joe Manson and Kirsten Sinema have this outsized influence, and I think McConnell likes that a lot more than Schumer yeah, does. Yeah, I so. think
1: that's right. And also with with the you know fifty one forty nine is better for the Democrats on committees; it gives them more power. So there there were benefits to having an extra seat. Um, and so for that reason, I think McConnell would like to see Walker win. But I mean, maybe deep down, secretly, he's, he's going to be just fine with, with not having Hershel Walker in the Senate. I don't know. We'll see. That's a – you'd have to put him on the couch.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, Phil, uh, I want to move on in a second. But, you know, this early voting in Georgia, uh, they broke the record again. It's uh, more than a million votes been cast so far uh, and just for reference I think there were about four million votes cast in November so that that's a sizable number
3: so Andy it wasn't Jim Crow
0: 2.0 <laughs> is that what you're saying let's just say a lot of people uh, in Georgia are voting this time around you know and there is this sort of reflection on how the GOP underperformed uh, in November um, and a lot of people are saying you know they just don't have a handle on this early voting phenomenon which is not going away apparently I should say also that Tom and he can make this point, he says early voting results don't tell you anything. But we do know that African-American and youth voting uh, is up in these early uh, voting this time around. And those are two constituencies that
2: they are not favorable for Republicans.
0: So uh, what's going on with all this early voting?
2: So party operatives certainly see early voting um, as an indication of the strength and health of the RNC and these other committees get out the vote efforts. And frankly, I think that when the RNC finishes their review, which they very much do not want to be called uh, a postmortem or an autopsy, that's going to be one of the things that Republicans take a closer look at, uh, which is, you know, why weren't they as effective in getting people actually to the polls or getting people uh, set up so that they could vote early from home? You know, from what I'm hearing now, uh, in in the coming months, uh, between now and whenever that review comes out, I think we're going to find out a lot more about whether or not Republicans were really good at spending money on ads, or whether or not they were actually, you know, had the infrastructure necessary to uh, make sure people had early ballots, make sure people had, you know, rights to the, the polls, so on and so forth. That's going to be An area of increased emphasis. And and so far, Republicans aren't encouraged by the results.
0: Well, let's uh, talk about the White House uh, for a moment and uh, this uh, Biden uh, request uh, to change the primary schedule for 2024. This is a Pretty fascinating story, I think. Uh, He wants to make South Carolina the first primary state, and this would end the tradition of New Hampshire as first in the nation. And he cites the need for more racial diversity in early primaries. And so here's what Biden wrote to the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee. He said, uh, this was on Thursday, I believe, we must ensure that voters of color have a voice in choosing our nominee much earlier in the process and throughout the entire window. So Biden came in fourth in Iowa. He came in fifth in New Hampshire. He came in first in South Carolina. So, Carl, I mean, coincidence, uh,
3: causality? What's the rationale here? Turns out that Joe Biden made a second promise to Jim <laughs> Clyburn, <laughs> right? Um, not not just a, a, a black woman on the Supreme Court, um, but South Carolina gets to first. Uh, Maggie Hassan, the governor of New Hampshire, has. And already issued her rebuttal. We will go first, she said, with not mincing words. Um, I this is a is a kind of a funny gambit because South Carolina has moved up; it's now third, and it's second primary. N- nobody cares about Iowa anymore. We spend all that money covering it, but it's never it's not definitive. Nobody nobody pulls out after they lose Iowa anymore. Iowa doesn't mean anything, uh, but New Hampshire means a lot, and. People have been taking aim at New Hampshire for a long time. You know they may pull this off, but there's something about it that's a little strange. Is that so, as I say, South Carolina is very early, and Biden won it and and got the nomination. I mean, it's not like South Carolina didn't influence the party last time. South Carolina picked the nominee, so in, in one sense, this seems like a a solution in search of a problem.
2: Well, well remember what happens: uh, Biden performed so poorly in New Hampshire; he doesn't even wait. Uh, for all of the results to come in. He, he goes to the airport and literally on the steps of the airplane says, black voters are going to have their say. And it was pretty um, nakedly opportunistic. But after South Carolina, everything does change. He turns from a dead man walking almost overnight into the, the front runner. Um, and, and that's because of his sway uh, with the African American community. So, so clearly um, he, he wants to reward them uh, for their support, but also like this just makes a lot more sense for him personally as a candidate. Plus, you know, he didn't have good experiences in, in either Iowa or New Hampshire. And I'm not even sure Iowa can run a caucus at this point. Tom, what do you think?
1: Well, I was going to say, I mean, the only reason we are even talking about this is because Iowa, Is so incompetent. Iowa Democrats are so incompetent. They (laughs) completely
3: did they ever count the votes? (laughs) Do we ever count who won (laughs) there?
1: And by the way, uh, you guys are giving short shrift to Nevada, which had its caucuses before South Carolina. Uh, Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. won Nevada with 40% of the vote. Joe Biden finished second there with 18.9%. So, and again, that was also this. You know, we got to get Hispanics involved and because Iowa, New Hampshire, so white and obviously South Carolina has a high African-American uh, primary voting population for Democrats. And so the, the compromise was to sort of slide Nevada in there. Um, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, this is a result of Iowa being Iowa Democrats. But Re- Iowa Republicans have had their problem counting votes as well. So I don't know what's in the water out there, but they completely fumbled the ball. And the result
0: is going to be there. They will not be. First in the nation anymore. So, but what about New Hampshire? I mean, it is a state law in New Hampshire uh, that they be first in the nation. So, I don't know how that's going to work out. Well, they've already said. I mean, the the secretary of state there has already said,
1: um, and we'll see what the what what the other elected officials that they're willing to move it up into the year before. I mean, they'll move it into December if they need to uh, to protect their status. I mean, this has been an ongoing. And Reed Wilson wrote about this when he worked for us. He interviewed the secretary of state and. It is. It's a, it's a It's a. real point of pride, one that they
0: are willing to go to unbelievable lengths to protect in the state of New Hampshire. Carl, are you a traditionalist on, on this? I mean, there is something about trudging through the snow in New Hampshire and going to those coffee houses and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it would be different if you were in South
3: Carolina, correct? It, it, it would be different. It'd feel different. But you know what? The, the weather would be better. <laughs> I grew up in California. I, I, I think Going to going to Iowa in December, like I used to do. All oh, the reporters want Florida to be first. Yeah, or yeah, South Carolina <laughs> to me makes a lot of sense. You know, they get, I've taken up golf, as you guys know. There's Phil. I, we may have I, you may not get to cover South Carolina this
2: time. <laughs> uh, uh, Carl is
1: I, already bigfooting you, Phil. I,
2: I will say uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed uh, South Carolina a lot more. I stayed in uh, Myrtle Beach for a little while it's because the candidates were there, so much better than Iowa.
3: Well, but but Andy, uh, you made a serious point, and it was New Hampshire voters for decades have taken this primary very seriously. I mean, back to the '60s with Lyndon Johnson, the, the candidates go, they meet them, they, and it's not just that the that the voters of New Hampshire, the Democrats, take their measure that of the uh, of the candidates. The candidates also learn what's going on in the party, in in, in the activist base of the party, not, not just the liberal base. Um, I remember John Edwards' campaign there. And he was just getting beaten up over his vote on the Iraq War, um, and he learned something, and we all did covering him. This is these coffee, famous coffee clutches in, in these New Hampshire living rooms, and and these are people who follow the race closely, they follow politics closely, and you know, you look, you will miss something if you didn't have that anymore. I, that, I don't know why, and if and if New Hampshire's not first, would New Hampshire? I don't think New Hampshire would matter. So, in a way. If if South Carolina goes first, nobody's going to cover New Hampshire the way they did, and and I think something would be lost. I I do, Tom, um, because
0: I see you chortling over there, which you do occasionally.
3: I was chortling over the fact that
0: (laughs) what we learned about John Edwards is he was cheating on his cancer-stricken wife.
3: (laughs) We didn't learn that in New Hampshire,
0: Tom. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's my question though for you, uh, which is that the you know part of the idea is that Iowa and New Hampshire are not. Don't have huge media markets, and so it forces, or doesn't force, but it allows uh, sort of outsiders to make a more substantial run, and it rewards people who aren't necessarily in the national spotlight. Um, moving to other, especially in the Midwest, if they move to bigger states, that would change. I guess everything's a trade-off.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that is that's the trade-off, and and there is something too. I mean, if you've if you've ever covered politics and you go out and and go to The Iowa State Fair. You go to like a Pizza Ranch (laughs) if you're a a Republican candidate, or any of these events. New Hampshire is the same way. I mean, it is the the voters there take it seriously. They show up at these events, and and they really do get to kick the tires of the candidates. And there's something to that. I mean, that that candidates on both sides have to demonstrate that they have some retail skills that they understand. I mean, you know, all these candidates have to stand in you know, cornfields and talk to farmers about agriculture and ethanol and all of these things. And, and that will be lost if you go to bigger States where it's simply more of a money game, how much money can you raise and to get yourself on TV in these markets and, and you don't have to do that kind of, that kind of retail politicking. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's part of the trade-off that, that these candidates are going to go through. And I think that that is something that will be, uh, that will be missed. I mean, one, I think one of the reasons that we have had such huge, huge fields on both sides—I mean, 16 candidates in, in 2016 on the Republican side—and how many did we have in the Democratic side last time—it was a dozen or more. So many that we couldn't even get them all on the same debate stage. We had to have two nights of debates uh, on both during both primaries. Is because the barrier for entry right now is pretty low. Right, you can you can run for president. You don't need much. Uh, you don't need a ton of money. You can have, you can do it based on social media presence. You can raise your money that way. You can organize that way, and and you can do it in a place like Iowa or New Hampshire and try and you know again test the waters and see if you can catch fire and and test your message and all sorts of and and that will probably be uh, the barrier to entry will be higher if the state is bigger and more expensive for these candidates. Uh, so so yeah, there are trade offs to be made, and obviously the
0: Democrats are. Are weighing those right now. So, Phil, before we leave this, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, will will New Hampshire not be first? I mean, will the DNC? And this would also make the DNC and the Republican uh, schedules different. I should say that the Republicans have committed already their schedule, and they're they going to leave New Hampshire first, and I don't think they're making any changes.
2: Yeah, I'm curious to see how all of this um, shakes out. Certainly, I didn't expect um Maggie Hassan to be going to war with the, the DNC over this this early. I mean, the Democrats seem comfortable at least having this conversation. Uh, I think that you know, generally, you know, this indicates that uh, you know, there, there's momentum for for Biden making his 2024 announcement. Even though um, occasionally he he likes to um, hint that it's not a done deal. I don't think the party would be having this discussion about rearranging primaries and caucuses if it wasn't expected uh, or perhaps guaranteed that that Biden would uh, again run for president.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I think that that was one of the things that you might take away from this is that this is an indication that uh, Biden is planning on running and people expect him to run at this point. So let's talk about the Republicans. They won the House, Phil. Kevin McCarthy wants to be the speaker. He's getting some resistance. How's he doing uh, on trying to get his speakership across the finish line?
2: We'll see, once the new Congress is seated, how serious some of these challenges are. There's all this talk about some sort of challenger emerging uh, who could take McCarthy on. That doesn't seem serious at at this point. Instead, um, talk of a challenge seems focused less on pulling the gavel out of his hands and more on getting Republican leadership to concede to uh, their right flank to let the Freedom Caucus Um, uh, you know, have the the rule changes uh, on who gets into the the committees, um, you know, changes on rules of of how they can vacate the chair, uh, so on and so forth. Um, I think what's been interesting to see is that as the margins get slimmer, um, the threat from his right flank increases. And even as he has less control over the House, you've seen McCarthy become more conservative. And so previously he said, you know, that they were going to investigate Mayorkas, for instance, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, uh, administrator, he said, you know, we're going to investigate him, uh, but we don't start with impeachment. Well, now that his numbers have narrowed, um, and it's, you know, a, a closer shave for him, uh, one of the things that he's done is come out and publicly said, almost as a, um, Concession to you know House conservatives is he's called on Mayorkas to either resign or face impeachment, and I think that 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 generally shows uh, how he's he's feeling the heat.
0: Carl, is there a candidate who could emerge who could uh, take him on for this?
3: Well, well, that's the point. There is nobody, and and you know this uh, Arizona uh, Republican Andy Biggs, who seems to be leading the anti-McCarthy faction. He challenged McCarthy. He lost. Uh, now he's talking about trying to force McCarthy to go to the floor and then McCarthy, McCarthy's another scenario apparently would be too embarrassed and he'd drop out, but they don't have another candidate. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it exposes some of these guys as being kind of anti-democratic, small D democratic. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is supporting McCarthy. If you're to her right, you, you may have to go into therapy or do something else <laughs> um, other than <laughs> elective politics. So yeah, I, yeah, Look, I, I think this opposition is going to crumble. But as Phil points out, and you put, if you got a four or five seat margin, I mean, you 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 can't spare all the kooks. You need them too. <laughs> Tom, how do you see it? Yeah, I think this is
1: performative, right? Without without someone to challenge him, I mean, some viable challenger waiting in the wings. You know, what are they going to do? And you had Mark Levin, who who came out and basically, you know, and he's he's no. Wilting, you know, centrist squishy guy who He's basically not a calls these guys the, the five, you know, knuckleheads. <laughs> I think Republicans at the end of the day, and McCarthy has said this, and this is what I think Nancy Pelosi did and Democrats recognize, which is when your margins, the only way they're going to survive and get anything done is to be unified, like completely unified. And, and that's the calculus at the end of the day. And are Republicans, you know, are they are they divided enough, and are they not pragmatic enough, where they're gonna, you know, basically explode their caucus on over <laughs> over all these different issues? Um, I think when it gets down to brass tacks, they're gonna they're gonna all fall in line because that's the only way that they can any of them can achieve any of the things that they
0: want, even partially, is if they all hang together. Does this say though anything about the Republican caucus at this point and tell us anything about how they're going to act
3: in the in the new Congress Carl I'll be surprised if if McCarthy's able to resist these calls for to impeach the president look this this these two parties now are as polarized as they've been any time since the Civil War uh, they don't you know there are no there are no liberal Republicans left in the House there are no conservative Democrats and you know impeachment is now. You know, we've had what we had we had two impeachments in, you know, two hundred years. Now we've had three, you know, in, in the last three presidents. And when you read the media, they want to invite Hunter, you know, they want to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop. That that trivializes what they want to do. What what they want to do is have some hearings that expose the intimations of Biden family corruption, taking money, millions and millions of dollars from China, from Chinese business people. To the Biden family, they want to talk about that without the press censoring them. They, I think they want, I think they have to like hearings into why the FBI felt it tried to participate in the stifling of these news stories about what was on Hunter Biden's laptop. So not everything they want to do is frivolous. A lot of it's important, but McCarthy's McCarthy's task is to rein in the people who, you know, the, the kamikazes who just want to, you know, to use Tom's word, performative art, who just want to do that. But focus on what he thinks, and I think McCarthy and, and, and the Trump forces thing is this power that was used against conservatives in the last two administrations that the media has gone along with, and they want to expose that. So it, it's going to be rancorous. You would think with a closely divided house that maybe the game would be to try
0: to get those votes in the center, and you would end up with sort of people trying to you know, convince those few conservative Democrats that might be left, or a few Republicans to sort of come over to their side, um, and then this sort of alternative strategy, which is no, you just have to hold on to your base no matter what, because you know, so you have to placate those on the far right or far left. I mean, of those two scenarios, is that second one really what uh, we we should expect to see? And um, I mean, how do you see that?
2: Yeah, we should absolutely expect that second scenario. Um, the parties are playing to their own bases in the House. And I think that maybe in a couple of months, we'll be having a larger discussion about whether or not a long-term Speaker of the House is tenable for anyone. Uh, What we're seeing McCarthy go through right now has, um, you know, it's not just an echo of his past failure uh, to succeed um, Speaker John Boehner, but it's also um, a, a mirror image uh, of some of the fits that the Freedom Caucus, these same guys, uh, put um, Speaker Paul Ryan through. And, you know, if it really is just that they agree in principle about these things, but they, they disagree in, in tactics, uh, then you would think that at some point they would all fall in line. But there's there's deep animosity and there's, there's deep frustration. And I think that we may have lost sight of that uh, a little bit during the Trump years, and then a little bit during these first two years of, of Biden, because you had conservatives and Republican leadership rowing in the same direction. But when McCarthy has to make a deal, and he has to go to Hakeem Jeffries and say, you know, who who are your moderates who can come alongside uh, me and, and get you know this legislation to the finish line, the Republican base is going to scream and holler, and um, you know, they'll hold that against him. They, they, they won't forget that. Yeah. And, and perhaps, you know, next time there actually will be a, a serious McCarthy challenger. Hmm.
0: Well, Tom, last word on this, but I would point out one thing before, which is that you do not have to be a member of the house to be the speaker. Right. That's why people were saying that that Trump was going to be speaker. Right. And they would appoint <laughs> Trump. I, I just think that's <laughs> so. fascinating. That in the past, there've been votes cast for Colin Powell. Not that that's going to happen this time, but I mean, how do you see this playing out? As I said, I think McCarthy's going to, without a viable alternative, McCarthy's going to,
1: he's going to win the job. And he's going to have a very tough time over the next two years trying to manage, just like Pelosi did uh, when she had effectively the same, the same slim majority. And Carl's right. um, We are as politically divided, more politically divided than we've been in a long time, maybe ever in this country. And on top of that, the problem is that we don't just disagree politically, each side views the other side as an existential threat to them and um, Pew has done some research on this i mean it's, it's it's frightening because you know Republicans think Democrats are a threat to their way of life they're the Marxist groomers you know all of that sort of language and obviously you know Democrats look at Republicans and think they're you know, racists, fascists, authoritarians who, who shouldn't be anywhere near power. And if they get power, it's the end of democracy. So we become sort of the, you know, our politics is all, it's all chicken little all the time. The world is ending, the world is ending. And that leaves no room for compromise on, on, you know, a lot of stuff. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's not a great situation for, for the country to be in, but It'll all be better when we beat the Dutch tomorrow in the World Cup. (laughs) It's going to solve all our problems. (laughs) All right. We'll we'll be one happy country
0: moving forward. (laughs) So I want to thank Phil Wegman, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan for joining me today. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walton.